Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. I don't know if you've noticed, Liam. I, I have not tweeting very much anymore. First of all, you never did. Uh, second of all, I'll confess that it wasn't necessarily reading all of your stories anyway. Uh, so. Oh, you know, this is very interesting because on the podcast, you only hear Matt giving Liam a hard time. And you don't hear the parts where Liam Thank you. gives the little nudge. No, 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 no. Abigail, what you're saying is now you understand the justification I have in the way I treat Liam on the air, correct? <laughs> I am getting more of an insight. That is true. Yes. Please uh, continue with the relationship. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing reporter with Cal Matters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Tuesday, October 20th, we take one California voter through the housing propositions on their November ballot. Good luck to them. So something a little different today on this fortnight. We got an email from a longtime listener of the podcast who had some questions about a couple initiatives. And we thought, you know what? Why don't we just have this person on the podcast? And that way, not only will we answer her questions, but maybe your questions as well, dear listener. Yes. So we are going to welcome very shortly Abigail Zoger. She's a voter from Santa Rosa. And perhaps she could be a stand-in for you. We will also be talking about Proposition 19, the Portable Real Estate Tax Break Initiative. Ooh. Mm -hmm. It's it's sexier than it sounds for a lot of different <laughs> reasons. And we have a couple guests, a couple perfect guests to talk about that. Who do we have? So we have David Wolf. He is a consultant for the Yes on Prop 19 campaign. And then Sarah Kimberlin, a senior policy analyst with the California Budget and Policy Center. She uh, wrote a report on who Prop 19 may affect. And I have actually gotten more text messages and phone calls and emails from my friends asking about Prop 19 than any other initiative on the ballot. Is that the same for you? I think it, first of all, says a lot about your friends, but I think second of all, I think speaks to... What does that say about my friends? Uh, I don't know, that they care about property tax portability, I suppose. Or perhaps they are ready to be heirs for receiving their parents' homes and wondering how they can maximize their tax benefits and figure you'd be the perfect person to help. Yes, all of my friends are eagerly awaiting the death of their parents. <laughs> I mean, I get hit up all the time on stuff like this. What's the informal polling in terms of what initiatives you're being hit up the most yeah, about? I think the rent control, Prop 21, Still, I think certainly. Okay. Yeah, I think Prop 19. And then also, I think people are really confused about uh, Prop 22. I get a lot about that, too. I get that. And then I also get some split role Prop 15 questions yeah. every now and then. Okay, so a jam-packed podcast this fortnight. But first, the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastry, it is... The Avocado of the Fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. And yet again, actually, this avocado takes us outside California. We couldn't resist it. Shout out to longtime podcast listener Grace Haggerty. Hopefully I'm pronouncing the last name right. A student at Occidental College for sending... This one our way, Occidental, where Barack Obama went to college for his first two years. Did you know that? In L.A.? Yeah. Huh. I did not know that. This is one of those things that people not from California don't know. They just assume he went to Columbia for all four years, but no, went to Occidental his first couple years. Thanks for yeah. that trivia nugget. 
Anyway, thank you, Grace, for sending this along. This avocado takes us to the wealthy suburbs of Cleveland. Why don't you take it from there, Liam? So someone in this suburb, Bay Village, noticed what they thought was a homeless person sleeping on a park bench. And they called the police to say, hey, there's a problem here. But there's actually a, actually a real twist to this story, which it turns out that the quote unquote homeless person sleeping on a park bench was a sculpture placed there by a local Episcopal church. Depicting, a sculpture of what? Pray tell. Depic- Pray yes, tell. Depicting Jesus as a person experiencing homelessness. Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. Uh, yes. 100% clear. Yeah. And this happened. This occurred. This police call occurred just 20 minutes after the sculpture was installed. So this was some type of kind of traveling exhibit being put around, I think, church properties around the greater Cleveland area. But there's this great quote from Father Alex Martin, the pastor of St. Barnabas Church, which is where this sculpture was installed. Mm -hmm. The sculpture reminds us that even though homelessness is not a significant problem in our immediate neighborhood, we don't have to drive far to find those in tremendous need. Perhaps the statue will inspire those who see it to take action and help. Seeing Jesus depicted this way reminds us that Jesus identified with the outcasts and marginalized in his own day. He spent much of his time with tax collectors and prostitutes, largely to the chagrin of polite society. So in fairness here, the statue, it is not visibly apparent, even from a close distance, that this is Jesus. It is someone shrouded in a blanket Yes. And then you have to look at the feet to see kind of the crucifixion marks. Yeah. And in abundance Providing of the fairness, full context here. Yes. Okay. But also a good headline on this one. The website Cleveland oh, Scene. Great headline. In Bay Village, someone called cops on a sleeping homeless person. It was a statue of Jesus. <laughs> you know, often with headlines, you go for the strained pun, which yeah. I know you're a fan of. You go for some clever turn of phrase that only pleases a copy editor and nobody else. But this one, it's straight to the point and is beautiful because of it. Yes. That concludes our Avocado of the Fortnight. Uh, thank you again, Grace, for sending that along. And we should remind if our listeners, if you stumble across an avocado, it, it could be in California or elsewhere, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or send it to us via email. All right, now for something a little different. I'm excited for this, Liam. I know I had to bring you reluctantly on board for this concept, but have I gotten you more excited about this in recent days? First of all, you're lying. I'm Mm. on board. I'm here. I'm 100% ready to go here, and this is going to be fun. Liam very rarely likes to associate with who he calls the plebs, but I am a man of the people, and when I got (laughs) this email from a longtime listener called Abigail... I thought, hey, why don't we just have this person on the podcast and we can walk her through the questions she has on her November ballot? Because I think a lot of the people have similar questions. And so we have Abigail on the line. Hello, Abigail. Hi there. Nice way to set it up so that I might have a little animosity towards Liam. Good work. That would have happened regardless. Um, <laughs> So Abigail, why don't you tell us who you are and how you started listening to the podcast? So I live in Santa Rosa, California, which is around an hour and a half north of San Francisco. And I teach biology at Santa Rosa Junior College and have been there for over 20 years. And I'm primarily interested in climate issues. But I, of course, 
am also concerned with many other things. And so I've enjoyed, I don't know how I first discovered Gimme Shelter, but I, housing issues are really important to me, I think, because there's a social justice component. And the other piece is that if we're going to solve our climate problem, we're going to have to construct and build housing in an appropriate manner. And so I'm interested in California housing policy because it's clearly been a mess up until now. And based off you listening to the podcast, who would you rather spend like a Sunday afternoon in a cafe with, me or Liam? (laughs) I really enjoy both of you and would prefer Uh, if I could have uh, both of you at the cafe. (laughs) Not going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm honored to be on the podcast. I want you to know, I think very highly of it. I wish there were more podcasts of this quality about California politics and local issues. And you guys do a great job. And I'm a real fan. That's very, very nice of you to say. And it's also very refreshing to hear that from someone that doesn't teach at an urban planning department. (laughs) So this is is very, very nice. Let's get to it then. Our job here is to help you answer the questions you have about the housing propositions on your ballot. Have you voted yet? I have everything filled out and I'm waiting for this conversation to figure out what I'm going to do about the rent control proposition. A Very determinative here. Yes. yes. <laughs> we covered Prop 21, the rent control initiative, two weeks ago, and we've devoted a lot of episodes to rent control. What questions do you want to ask us about Prop 21? I was super glad that you had done that episode, but I listened to it and I felt at the end of it that I still didn't know which way to jump on the proposition. And that may be just because rent control is such a complicated issue that it's nobody really knows what its impacts are. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. for me, my primary goal is to know what will increase the stock of affordable housing in California, period. I know there's been studies that you guys mentioned about the community cohesion and keeping people in right. their communities. And that is a good thing. But right now, yeah. I mean, I teach at a community college and- somewhere between 10 and 20% of community college populations in California are homeless. Students are unhoused. And we just have to do something. So my first question was, on the whole, does rent control increase or decrease affordable housing? Secondly, will this proposition, is it well-written enough to achieve that? Third, maybe Rent control is really only a small piece of the puzzle and isn't that important for what's going on in California? Is that the case? Mm -hmm. These are good questions. Should I take a stab at this first? Yes, go for it. With probably an unsatisfying answer to start with, but I'll, I'll do my best. So I think the best way to try to respond to your question is to say it depends on what you mean by rent control and it depends on what you mean by affordable housing. Especially the latter part. That's right. And let me go through that. So again, what Proposition 21 allows is it allows for local governments with some limits to put their own rent control or rent stabilization policies in effect, or more so Mm -hmm. than they're allowed to do now under current state law. And so a lot of the studies that have looked at rent control obviously look at a specific form of rent control. And what this initiative does is it does not really mandate Mm. any specific form of rent control. And so more stringent than what's allowed now, but nothing that is determinative as to what something would actually look like. 
What I can say from the research on this sort of first part is that the research, generally speaking, when it comes to housing production overall, and we can get to affordable housing in a moment, when it comes to housing production overall, the concerns that there would be a drag on housing production in total isn't as borne out in the research as other things. And I think mm. for that's particularly the case because this measure has a carve out for the first 15 years. You can't put rent control on new construction after this. And so there may well be a drag on new construction, but that's not really the kind of the most salient aspect of what the research says about this. What the research does say, their impacts are more definitive when it comes to sort of rental housing stock, is that rent control does provide or has provided an incentive for apartment owners to turn their rent control buildings into condos. And so that, in a sense, would lead to less rental housing stock, mm -hmm. but not necessarily less housing, if that distinction makes sense. Yeah, thank you. So drilling in on what we mean by affordable housing, there's two ways to define it in my mind. One is affordable housing with what I call a capital A, which means subsidized housing, typically government subsidized housing that is specifically reserved for people making below a certain amount of money. So this is usually a, a percentage of the median income of a given area, primarily lower income and moderate income Californians. To my mind, this measure would not really impact the development of those units one way or another. What those units really need are government resources. You need money to build those units, something that's in real short supply, both at the state level and local level right now and has been for a while. So in terms of housing that is specifically reserved for low-income Californians that's subsidized by the government, this measure does not really impact that. And keep going, because I think that people both for and against rent control in this initiative would have different answers, though, kind of if we move affordable housing away from capital A and capital H to lowercase a and lowercase <laughs> h. Sticking with the strain convention, lowercase a affordable, yeah. that just means housing that to your average Californian isn't eating up all of their paycheck or maybe less than a third of their paycheck if we want to adhere to some federal definitions of what affordable might be. In this sense, what we're talking about is naturally occurring affordable housing, which is just kind of cheap housing. And I think I will take the this might hurt that argument to the extent that this does inhibit the new construction of housing over the long term supply will be constrained and you will just have less kind of filtering of nicer units into less nice units and more affordable units over the long term again with the caveat that that 15-year construction carve out i think is very meaningful and then do you want to take the other side of this, Liam? Yeah. And just to finish up on your point, as I said earlier, of the quote unquote destruction of rental housing stock by a conversion into owner-occupied housing stock or condos, that speaks to the same issue that Matt has raised, is that there's less sort of supply of rental housing. If there's less supply of rental housing, then it should be more expensive. That being said, I think the supporters of rent control would argue this, is Matt mentioned naturally occurring affordable housing. So how can you make sure that there's more naturally occurring affordable housing is that, you know, provide ways or guidelines where that housing is 
in fact, more affordable. And one way to do that is to restrict the ability for landlords to raise rent so much. And certainly having firmer or stricter rent control policies would do very much do that. And so while you may be at some level have less housing stock overall, at another level, you may have through some rent control policies be able to restrain the rents and keep them more affordable for the housing stock that does remain. So did we just make things worse or does that help? (laughs) Well, I think it helped me for you to break it down. You know, I've heard people describe that housing problems in the United States are coming two varieties. One is that people who don't earn enough to afford the housing that's available. And that's really a problem of what they earn. And that's what Section 8 or other subsidies are there for. And then the second question are people who do earn enough but this huge portion of their income is going to their housing. And that's where more of the kind of, you know, supply and demand economic arguments kick in of how to yep. increase the, mm-hmm. the housing stock. So that raises another question for me is that if this does pass, do you think there are many jurisdictions that would take advantage of this and there'd be more rent control enacted around the state? The short answer is yes. I think very blue bastions along the coast and definitely those that already have rent control policies in place. So we're talking about Los Angeles, San Francisco, Berkeley. It would not surprise me in the least if you saw an expansion of what properties fall under rent control in those places. However, I will say once you go to some more conservative parts of the state, including cities in the Central Valley where there aren't rent control protections right now, I still think that's going to be a very tough fight. They could have rent control right now. And in many cases, there have been local efforts to put it on the ballot or to get it through city councils, and tenant groups haven't been able to do it. So I I don't know if this would actually change anything in those areas. Almost certainly in your L.A.'s, your San Francisco's, your Berkeley's, your Santa Monica's, you would see an expansion of rent control to many more properties than they're allowed to have now under current state rules. But whether that means that all of a sudden Fresno or San Diego or some of these other cities may get rent control, I think there's no sign to think that they would, especially given that they haven't taken advantage of the availability of perhaps more limited rent control that, that they can do right now. So if I could just summarize, what I heard you guys saying was that this version of rent control would seem to be, have less of a drag on construction, but it still could promote more conversion to condos. And it's hard to know how that would do in the end to the amount, the stock of small A, small H affordable housing. Yeah, that, that's a very good summary. Yeah. Okay. You are a real listener, Abigail. You're not a plant from the developers, I have not just been blowing smoke. I have been listening to you for a number of years. I don't take notes, but I'm paying attention. The only caveat being that that since this doesn't mandate a particular form of rent control, that there could be different impacts in different Mm -hmm. communities, depending on what their specific rules may be. And so then the last question I have, in the terms of the problems we have in California, how much of a change would this make to California's housing situation? the problems we have with people in general, affordability of living. Do you think that this is a big part of the puzzle or are there so many other things going on in California that are influencing it? I mean, I've really been convinced listening to you and listening to other people. I hesitate to say this. Many of my friends who are involved in local politics are going to be listening to this podcast. They want to hear what I have to say. (laughs) But local control is a big part of the problem. And I can think right here in Santa Rosa of liberal, wonderful 
people who are just so concerned with social justice who are very upset about some developments going to change the traffic patterns is going to do this or going to do that and you know right. and i have come to see that we are the problem a big part of the problem and like i don't want an apartment building next to me either but on the other hand that's what everyone says so that's why we don't get an apartment building next to anybody so do you think that rent control is a big piece of the puzzle or is it just sort of like a little extra that pushes the scale one way or the other? So I think time horizon is really relevant. So in, in the very short term, in terms of the menu of options that policymakers and voters have to help tenants stay where they are and fight off what was an escalating rent crisis and still is in many parts of the state, although the pandemic has changed that slightly. Mm -hmm. Rent control, although a blunt tool, is still one of the few tools that could do something. In the long term, I think most experts would agree the problem is more on the supply side. Mm -hmm. The problem is more on getting enough housing stock there so the median price of a California home isn't over 700 grand mm -hmm. and rents are significantly more affordable mm -hmm. to people up and down the income spectrum. Liam, what do you think? That's a good summary. Just two things to add. What rent control does is it privileges those who are already in apartments over those who may be you know, moving into some in the future. And I think there's a value judgment on what you think, whether that's good or bad or not, or how good or bad that is. And so I think that's one thing to keep in mind and understand about this. And second, as Matt sort of alluded to the pandemic, the pandemic really does change the most sort of proximate yes. concern that I think renters have right now, which is less about, oh my gosh, my rent's going to go up 10% next year versus, oh my gosh, I lost my job yeah. and I can't make the rent payment that I have right now. Rent control in and of itself does sort of nothing about that latter concern. No. And so I think in the sense of what's the most pressing concern for a California tenant, the landscape has shifted a bit since the spring, obviously with the economic devastation the pandemic has caused to sort of more immediate problems about how you're going to pay the rent that you owe versus your worries about your rent going up that you can't pay in the future. Okay, well, we have answered every possible question you could ever have, Abigail, about Prop 21. That is correct. So, <laughs> so hopefully you feel better informed and can vote with the confidence of an educated voter. As always, after listening to you. Flattery will get you nowhere. Now let's transition to the other kind of signature housing initiative on the ballot, which is Proposition 19. And let's actually start here very quickly, Abigail. How much have you heard about Prop 19? Have you seen any of the advertisements around Prop 19? You know, I, for some reason, have existed in a political advertisement-free bubble. I don't know how that happened. Oh, lucky you. But I remember where of it because you did a previous show on the issue, Jeff Bridges' sons and blah, blah, blah. Oh, yes, Jeff Bridges, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a perfect segue then. Let's start with the origin story of Prop 19, Liam. And then Abigail, if you have questions, interrupt at any time. So very quick summary of what Prop 19 does. Prop 19 gives new property tax breaks to older homeowners, those 55 and older. It also increases property taxes for those inheriting their parents' properties, and then tax on some relief for those affected by wildfires. And that sounds like three very different things, and in fact, they are. There actually is some logic, some very serious sausage making for how this all came to be. So like Prop 21, this is another sort of 2.0 measure. Some folks may remember voting on a similar measure in 2018. That was called Proposition 5. And the California Association of Realtors, who was also behind Prop 19, was behind Prop 5. And that measure 
pretty much only would have given 55 and, and older homeowners a tax break when they move. And the idea is to deal with the fact that you have these older longtime homeowners who don't move now because they'd face a huge property tax hit to downsize or to go to a condo or whatever. But when you reduce taxes for people, that means that that costs money. And in fact, when the legislative analyst, which evaluates the fiscal impacts of all initiatives, did an analysis of Proposition 5, the number they came back with was this was very bad, right? A super, super, super <laughs> I don't, costly. I don't, I don't think yeah. very bad is a number, but it, 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 very bad, it's a very bad number. Yeah. <laughs> and so once that sort of happened, the realtors didn't mount a robust campaign for Prop 5, and then it got crushed at the ballot. Just real yeah. quickly here, because it was going to have such a negative fiscal impact on local governments and schools, it also provoked opposition from public unions, from teachers unions, and from uh, progressive Democrats, firefighters. Let's fast forward to present day. What's on the ballot now? So the realtors, they came back with this new idea. We like this same tax break for older, ho older homeowners, but we're going to add some stuff because that very bad fiscal analysis needed to be fixed. They're thinking we need a way to pay for it. And so they pick up the L.A. Times one day and yep. they, see, they, see, they see an article by Liam Dillon <laughs> with Jeff Bridges on the cover. And what happens next? And they go, aha, we've yeah, come upon it. Liam <laughs> gave us the idea. So there's this property inheritance tax break that we wrote about the L.A. Times a couple years ago what's now been dubbed the Lebowski loophole, uh, as you're referencing Jeff Bridges, yes. for the heirs of homeowners. And so what that would do is end the ability for children of homeowners to get their parents' house when they inherit it and then maintain their low property tax base payments if they were to rent it out. So this will generate a lot of money if this were to go away. We found, and you know, our story dug deep into this and found that a large share of those inheriting their parents' houses were in fact renting them out or losing as second homes. And so a goodly number would go away. And now when you add the tax break for the older homeowners with elimination of this tax break for heirs, it's revenue positive. So claps all around for the supporters <laughs> of Prop 19 coming up with a way to make their initiative pay for itself. Now, there's another element to this here, a final twist that involved the state firefighters union. Mm -hmm. So, As we mentioned, the firefighters really disliked Prop 5 because they were worried that more money would be directed away from uh, firefighting efforts. So the firefighters decided to make a deal with the realtors uh, in the last minute to direct excess dollars from the measure to wildfire relief. And then they jointly asked the legislature to bless their agreement. And so because the legislature likes to listen to powerful interest groups, such as the realtors and the firefighters, they, in fact, put the measure on the ballot. And that's why you have Prop 19. Which, because it kind of came through this process, which had the blessing of the legislature, also has the blessing of Governor Gavin Newsom and the California Democratic Party, which are now fans of this measure. To be clear, a sort of wide bipartisan business labor kind of group in favor of the measure at this point. And again, not very much in the way of organized opposition and particularly well-financed organized opposition. I mean, Howard Jarvis has poured a little money into this. They basically really don't like the Lebowski loophole being closed. They're okay with the other provision of it. You know, they right. supported Prop 5, which would have been a de facto expansion of Prop 13. But, you know, other than that, and then kind of some, I don't know, progressive think tanks who aren't enamored with the idea, not much of real opposition here. In terms of support, I mean, we should mention that the realtors still super pumped about this and so pumped that they've put more than $37 million into the campaign to get it passed. So 
Abigail, questions on the history of this or what's actually in it? All I just know is that I looked at the League of Women Voters site and they are recommending a no vote on this. You know, they're someone I look to for good governance. And so their feeling is that it perpetuates the inequity of the system between different homeowners by expanding this tax loophole for people who don't need it. And there might be a better way to do that. So I I just now I'm very confused because I'm like, you know, I tend to look at the League of Women Voters as a good source, but the whole story you just told started to indicate widespread support for it. So I guess how would this affect housing? So if these are people who've inherited property and the taxes go up, will that lead to higher rental costs because they will have to pass that along to renters? That's an interesting way to think about it. To bring some more context to this, according to the Legislative Analyst Office, about 650,000 homeowners in California over the last decade got this tax break, allowing them to maintain their parents' low property tax mm. payments when they upon inheritance. And as I said, we delved into, at the times, that a large number of those homes are used as an investment property. Big Lebowski one being sort of the primary example we found and just some more clarity on what we did find is that Jeff Bridges and his siblings inherited a a beachfront home in Malibu from their parents and their annual property tax bill was less than $6,000 for that property. They were putting it up on the rental market for $16,000 a month. Mm -hmm. So big discrepancy, of course, in the value of the home, how much they could charge for it versus what they were ended up paying in property taxes. And so to your point or to your question about, you know, whether heirs who are renting them out, renting out these homes would pass along higher property taxes. I think probably what's more likely and frankly, what the realtors are kind of counting on is that heirs, if they would sell the Mm. house, if they can't make the property tax payment, then they would sell it or they would keep it, but then have to pay full freight on their taxes. The home sale part certainly is something that realtors are totally fine with because when you sell your house, there's a realtor who's going to be involved. Your intuition is correct. Basically that that cost has to be dealt with one way or the other. I guess one of three ways. One, the person inheriting the property could move into it. So if my mom leaves her house to me, if I move into that house, mm-hmm. very unlikely, then I don't have to pay these higher property taxes. Uh-huh. Or I rent it out, and if I need to charge a higher rent to recoup the property taxes, I try to do that. Or if that math doesn't work out, then I sell it. And then that yeah. could be a, another commission for a realtor. It's a brilliant stroke from the realtors where the solution to the negative fiscal impact of Prop 5 mm-hmm. would also result in more home sales. So if there are flaws in this proposition regarding changes to Prop 13, what are the odds that there be anything that would be better than this? Ding, ding, ding. That is the, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think that is the most relevant question here. So continue, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, having been in California as an adolescent when Prop 13 passed, seen all of what's going on and seen how Nobody dares touch it for years and years and years because, you know, the third rail of California politics, blah, blah, blah. And then this would solve one set of problems, which it doesn't seem really correct that commercial property, like an apartment that doesn't get its taxes changed because they're charging more and more and more rent. So that seems great. But then there's also some other problems with this. I don't like the fact that it's 
takes the excess money and puts it for one particular fund. I hate, I've seen over the years, that's a bad idea in California. Things should go to the general fund so the state isn't locked in. So what's the chance of something better? A couple of things. So Prop 19 is a different measure than Proposition 15. Yeah. Now we're getting more complicated. Oh, right, and, right. And that, that's the one that would, you get sort of higher property tax payments for businesses. Right. And so that's a separate measure entirely. And that's the one that kind of really gets at the third rail issue yeah. of Prop 13. So let's just put that aside for a moment. But to your point about, okay, so if you unwind one portion of Prop 13, and to be part of this wasn't initially in Prop 13, but it's certainly a, a son of Prop 13 idea that people continue to keep their parents lower property tax payments. If you were to unwind that, but at the same time, what that unwinding is paying for to your point, is a further expansion, essentially, of Prop 13 benefits for older homeowners who are already the largest beneficiaries of the property tax scheme that we have right now. And then speaking to before about the realtors kind of benefiting on both sides of this, that sort of goes to show that a lot of these measures that sort of tinker with property tax rules have to be kind of supported by a major interest group for them to be on the ballot at all. And so I'm probably just muddling things even further, but it, again, kind of goes to show that when you're talking about these really significant and important things, it requires kind of interest group to ha has a lot of heft to be able to put themselves behind it. And of course, the interest group is going to work in their interests, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's how you come, come up with a measure like you have when you look at Prop 19. I think when a lot of people look at Prop 19, they look at the Lebowski loophole portion of it and they say, well, why don't we just do away with that. Maybe they're not so comfortable with giving these expanded tax breaks to older homeowners who skew wealthier and wider, and they want more of the revenue to go to general funds of local governments, state government in a convoluted way. So let's just do that. I think that's the thought that crosses a lot of people's minds. The problem is, is that in order to do that, it is going to be an incredibly complex and difficult battle if you're going to do it through the legislature first. Like people have been talking about some type of comprehensive tax reform for decades, and it's very, very hard politically to do. And Governor Gavin Newsom had talked about wanting to spur some type of comprehensive tax reform, which could have included something like closing the Lebowski loophole. And there's yet to be significant evidence that he's really going to go after that, at least in the first term of his administration. So your question is an incredibly important one, because I think when people look at this measure, that's kind of the conflict that's going through their heads if they're not fans of the expand the Prop 13 benefits for older homeowners portion of it. Yeah, I think it's right. And I think we should also be clear on the other end that folks who argue that tax increases are not good and other aspects of while property tax payments in California are not as high as they are in, in other states. Certainly when you look at income tax and a lot of other taxes in sales California, tax. California's sales tax near at the top of the list. And so arguments by folks who want to restrain tax receipts would say, look, why should we be taking more money away from folks if they already have this tax benefit? We shouldn't discount that as well, like, mm -hmm. I guess is what I'm saying. I mean, especially if younger Californians are less likely to be homeowners in the first place. So basically what you guys are saying is if there was another bite of this apple, it would have its own set of problems because it would have to be put forward by some interest group who would always put something that they wanted, particularly into a proposition. So don't go thinking fantasy-wise, there's going to be some clean, perfect solution. I think it's, again, it's a really good summary of, of yes. generally what, what we're <laughs> saying. But, you know, we elect people 
for a reason to do hard things. And I think it's going to be coming upon whoever the governor is and whoever legislators are to decide what they want to prioritize. If they decide to prioritize something that's complex, difficult, and hard, which ultimately would need to go to the voters anyway yes. as a comprehensive sort of tax reform system, that's among the heavier political lifts that I can imagine in California politics. Which is why you see it piecemeal on the ballot, especially this year. Well. I hope we've helped. Hopefully we haven't just confused you and depressed you more. Not that you were depressed to begin with. I'm just, uh, I I know. (laughs) Just the sheer size of the voter guide when I get in the mail is just, (laughs) oh God, it's that feeling. I have to read up on all of these. So hopefully we were helpful. Yes, very much so. I have a lot to think about, but it was definitely clarifying for sure. So we're going to move now to our interviews and you can hear more both of the pros and cons of uh, Prop 19. We are here with Sarah Kimberlin. She's a senior policy analyst with the California Budget and Policy Center. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. You did a study on Prop 19. Can you tell us what that study found about who benefits from the measure and why? Yeah, we did a study at the California Budget and Policy Center. We are a nonpartisan data-driven organization that focuses on evaluating public policies and effects on Californians with low and middle incomes. So one of the things we pay attention to is who benefits from policies, including tax policies, and the characteristics of those individuals. So we looked at Prop 19 and who would be the people who would benefit from the tax breaks that this proposition puts in place. And these are the tax breaks that apply to mostly older adult homeowners. So homeowners who are age 55 and older are the primary individuals who'd be eligible to benefit. I mean, what we find is basically this proposition largely benefits homeowners who are, compared to most Californians, who are relatively wealthy, have significant assets, and are more likely to be white than the demographics of California overall. So basically, it expands tax breaks for homeowners who largely have higher incomes and are more economically secure than California households overall. And in particular, they have a lot higher incomes and are much less likely to be living in poverty than renters who are in a similar age range. And I think another point was that these are some of the same folks from your study that you found already benefit from the state's property tax system. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a couple of layers to that, too. On the one hand, California's overall tax system provides a lot of benefits to homeowners more than most Californians. And historically, housing policy and tax policy have benefited homeowners more than renters, for example. And there is a racial component to that, too, because housing policies in the United States and including how they were implemented in California really concentrated their benefits on the white households most. And so homeowners in general are benefited more in California's tax system. And then on top of that, there's already special rules specifically for this group of homeowners that would benefit from Prop 19. So for homeowners who are age 55 or older, who are seeking to move, there's already special rules that allow them to move and keep their low property taxes when they move if they stay within the county where they live in or in one of the counties that has a county a special agreement to accept. Right. So there's basically already special rules for these specific homeowners and then homeowners more broadly receive a lot of benefits in California's tax system compared to most Californians who rent or have other arrangements. 
Could you quickly itemize some of those benefits? The biggest one, of course, is the mortgage interest deduction. Mm -hmm. That reduces the income taxes for Californians who itemize their income taxes. And then that's important to note there. I think some people think of that only as a federal benefit, but there's in fact a state benefit, a state, a separate state mortgage interest deduction as well. Then on top of that, of course, there's the the federal benefits as well for Florida's who itemize their taxes there too. And so, I mean, that's really the largest one. At the federal level too, there's the deduction for real estate taxes. And so just these are ways that the income taxes paid by homeowners are reduced compared to the income taxes paid by everyone else. These are special rules that already apply to homeowners. And so this proposition would then expand those benefits for the subset of homeowners. So a big line of argument from the pro Prop 19 side of things is this will not only benefit seniors over the age of 55, but also victims of natural disasters and especially wildfires, which are uh, unfortunately more and more in the news. What did your analysis say about those benefits? You know, it's interesting to me to see that how much emphasis there's been on the benefits to victims of wildfires. Wildfires have certainly been in this certainly a key challenge facing California. Really, the fact is that most of the benefits of this proposition would go to older adult homeowners. It's really not mostly about homeowners who've had their homes destroyed by wildfires or other disasters. In fact, those homeowners make up less than 1% of the total number of Californians who would be eligible to benefit. So that's like tens of thousands of people versus more than 4 million homeowners age 55 and older who would be eligible to benefit. So it's really a tiny, tiny share of the total individuals who would be benefiting under this. So I want to Take another kind of pro Prop 19 argument here. Is it not a real problem for the state that older homeowners feel or are in some cases stuck in their homes because they'd get a huge tax hit if they move? I mean, shouldn't we want these three or four bedroom homes to be used by younger families rather than empty nesters? When I think about that question, I think of a, a couple of ways of approaching it from an analytical point of view. So yeah. one issue is like we already have special rules in place that allow homeowners to downsize or relocate within the county that they're located in or within one of the counties that has a, an inter-county transfer agreement. So there already is state policy in place to help homeowners who are wanting to move and wanting to keep their lower property tax payments and then a second issue is just that we have many other aspects of the housing affordability crisis that are really more pressing. Same similar proposition was on the ballot a few years ago. The Legislative Analyst Office did analysis that said it might cause, might incentivize maybe tens of thousands of older adult homeowners to move who wouldn't have otherwise moved. It would also give a whole bunch of benefits to people who were going to move anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, it wouldn't help with that. If the idea is to address the housing affordability crisis, doing this giant project in order to incentivize tens of thousands of people to move is probably not the most effective or efficient way to address the core problems with our housing affordability problems. And so it does nothing, for example, to help the people who are most affected by the housing affordability crisis, which is really not older adult homeowners, really the people who are most struggling as a result of the housing affordability crisis are Californians with lower incomes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Californians who are renters, Californians who are Black and Latinx have the highest rates of paying unaffordable amounts towards housing. And so, you know, if we were really going to try to focus a policy on addressing the core issues that are a problem in California in terms of how they affect people's lives, it would make a lot more sense to focus efforts on helping those Californians who are really most directly affected. When I was reading 
your analysis, Sarah, and especially the the kind of conclusion there at the end where basically you're arguing, let's do something a little more comprehensive when it comes to tax reform than this. The reality, and I'm sure you're aware of this, it is really, really, really hard to do comprehensive tax reform in California. It's something people have been talking about for literally decades and nothing has really... Yeah, ever since <laughs> Prop 13 passed, right? right. Yeah. Exactly. So maybe, you know, in your ideal world, they could do something around this inheritance tax break in the legislature that combines other tax reforms that are a little bit more equitable. But how realistic do you think that actually is? Do you think that actually could happen? I think... We're at a time when people are more and more conscious of the ways our different institutional systems affect equity and, and that people are understanding the importance of making sure that that we are making choices in our public systems to make things equitable and you know not move backwards or reinforce the ways our society disadvantages some people more than others. So, I mean, so that for me personally gives me optimism. I think the pandemic also raises people's awareness of just how circumstances beyond your control can put you in a situation where you're really struggling. One of the things I think that people sometimes lose sight of with tax breaks in particular, we're speaking about equity in the California's tax system, is that a tax break has a cost. There's a cost there. Like if you are making a special rule and saying, normally you would need to pay this tax because that is the rule that we ask everyone else to follow. But we're making a special rule so that you don't have to follow that rule and you don't have to pay this tax. That means that money then is not available that otherwise would have been available to pay for things that may be a high, you know, a higher priority for most Californians. So when this similar initiative was on the ballot in 2018, the LAO Legislative analysts. Legislative analyst office estimated that the dollars lost in property tax revenues that otherwise would have come in by expanding this tax break and would have amounted to $100 million a year initially, expanding to over a billion dollars a year over time. With a billion dollars, you can do a lot of things that I think a lot of Californians would feel like are important priorities. And if you're really concerned about housing affordability, a billion dollars could be spent in all kinds of different ways that would have a more direct impact on the people who are really struggling most to afford their housing in California. That's, a, I think, a good segue to the other kind of big half of this measure, which is a way that would raise revenue, which is curtailing this inheritance property tax bake for those who, heirs who would rent out their parents' homes. Did you, did you find anything or take a look at that when you were analyzing this measure as well? I think there's been some analysis on, on that loophole as well. Generally, closing that loophole, I think... In contrast to expanding this tax break for older adult homeowners who already have some special tax breaks, closing that inheritance loophole would really make California's tax system more equitable. And so this is where the, this is a very complicated, complicated proposition. I think the key point, though, I think is it would be a, a good step towards making California's tax system more equitable to close that loophole. So that loophole largely benefits, again, Californians who have more assets than most Californians who already benefit from other kinds of tax breaks, it's likely that it exacerbates the racial wealth gap. Right, right. So closing that loophole would make the tax system more equitable. But if you then use the revenues generated by closing that loophole, if you primarily use those to expand tax breaks for this group of Californians who are already more advantaged, then the overall effect on equity 
is negative. So I think that's the concern. I think closing the loophole would make a lot of sense and could generate some revenues that could be used in a lot of important ways to address really important priorities for Californians. It's just a matter of whether it makes sense to, you know, the trade-off of spending those dollars largely to pay for a tax break for homeowners who don't really need an additional tax break, then you sort of defeat the purpose in terms of making our public systems more equitable. You referenced that kind of closing this inheritance tax break loophole would be a fiscal benefit for local governments, but it's not kind of homogeneous across the state. We have an idea of what types of counties or what types of local governments are going to benefit more from 19 than others. I can't speak to who would benefit most from the inheritance loophole. There's a lot of interactions here. So the counties that would be hurt most by the tax break expansion would be those that see an influx of people coming in, carrying their lower property tax values from from outside Mm -hmm. the county. So those would be the counties that would potentially be hurt by it, in particular in that the proposition puts in place some safeguard to try to repay counties who see a loss of revenues, but it doesn't guarantee that their losses will be fully covered. So, I mean, in the end of all this, it could be that there are some counties that end up with actually less money to support local community services and schools than they would have had otherwise. You know, even though on net at a statewide level, the proposition, the estimates show that it would increase revenues, that's actually not necessarily the case at the local level. Do we know which counties are more vulnerable to losing under Prop 19? I haven't seen any published data analysis that would show that. You know, I would expect it to be the places where people moving from areas where home values have appreciated quite a bit so that they can, you know, sell their properties with a lot of appreciation and moving to less expensive parts of the state. But I I don't know that there's been a lot of detailed analysis about that that's been published. Sarah, is there anything in our arrogance or ignorance that we neglected to ask that you think we should have? I think just overall, our overall take on this proposition is just that it's a very complicated scheme. And while it would increase revenues on net, it's a really complex way of going about it. And what it ultimately does is really it benefits older, wealthier, mostly white homeowners who already benefit from a lot of tax breaks. And so because of that, it's really a proposition that would tend to decrease equity in our tax system overall without actually doing anything to help the Californians who are most affected by the housing affordability crisis, which are the Californians with lower incomes and renters and Black and Latinx Californians. Well, Sarah, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sarah. We're here with David Wolf, a policy consultant with the Yes on Prop 19 campaign. David, thanks for joining us. Gentlemen, so good to be with you this morning. Let's start here with a very crass question. I am under 55. My mother owns a California home, which she says she may leave to me and my sister one day. Why should I vote for Prop 19? Because it benefits all Californians. Whether you're over the age of 50 seeking to move into another home because of health issues or to be closer to friends and family, we do believe that as millions of seniors, we are talking about millions of seniors, so 8.6 million Californians over the age of 60, 75% of whom own their own homes. And we know from experience and just on what we've heard that a lot of these seniors are going to move. And that is 
we think, going to open up inventory for millennials, you know, and for families that are just bursting out of some of these starter homes that they're in and they need to move up. And frankly, COVID and kids learning from home and all these things has only exacerbated that. So, I mean, we do think this is going to benefit all Californians. So given that voters rejected more tax breaks for older homeowners in a, a similar initiative two years ago, why should they vote for them now? So you brought up Prop 5 from 2018. And let me just say that this is a fundamentally different initiative than Prop 5 was. Prop 5 had unlimited property tax transfers for seniors and people with disabilities. Prop 19 doesn't. It limits it to three. And it also requires that homeowners who move continue to fill out paperwork with the county assessors, which also wasn't in the previous initiative. So there's some safeguards that didn't exist in Prop 5 that do now exist in Prop 19. And I think the biggest thing, obviously, that's in this measure is the intergenerational transfer provision. And that, of course, originally came about with Prop 58 in 1986, you know, allowing parents to transfer properties to their kids. And if you go back and look at the ballot pamphlet in 86, the measure made it very clear. And the ballot pamphlet made it clear that the measure was only supposed to impact benefit kids who specifically moved into their parents' homes. So we view this as just correcting the original intent of Prop 58 and keeping homes and families for kids to continue to live in. So I want to push on that aspect a little bit. So you used to work at the Howard Jarvis Taxpayer Association. And then when I spoke to John Kupal, who's the head of that a couple of years ago for my story on this inheritance property tax break, he said, just as you said, it was not the voters intent to have wealthy out-of-state heirs get tax breaks for renting out their parents' homes. But now the association opposes 19 because they call this part in particular a billion-dollar increase tax increase on California families. So let's say you were still working for Howard Jarvis. What argument would you make internally for why this is a good measure? It's a good measure because, again, it restores the intent of Prop 58, and it helps 9 million vulnerable California residents, not just seniors and people with disabilities, but one other thing that I mentioned, something else that was not in Prop 5 that is in Prop 19 is allowing wildfire victims who have lost their homes to transfer their property tax base to another home anywhere in California. And flexibility that that gives those homeowners who have literally lost everything to be able to restart their lives is incredibly beneficial. I mean, I think this really does appeal to, you know, our most vulnerable California residents and giving them tax flexibility. So you mentioned wildfire victims and how they could benefit from Prop 19. Um, A a California Budget and Policy Center analysis found that less than 1% of homeowners eligible for the Prop 19 tax benefits would be natural disaster victims. Why should your average California believe that this proposition is about wildfire relief? They should believe it because, again, it does provide that benefit for those homeowners who have lost homes in these wildfires. And again, that's expressed in our campaign ads that we're not just running ads with wildfire survivors. We're running ads with firefighters, with, with, <laughs> with, seniors, with seniors and people who will who will benefit from it and also people with disabilities. You know, I have cerebral palsy. I have a I have a permanent disability. That aspect of the measure really does speak to me in that we're helping individuals who are disabled for no reason other than being born that way, who, you know, are stuck in their homes now because of medical conditions. And maybe they're in a home that's not ADA accessible and doesn't work for them. And Prop 19 allows them the flexibility to move 
at any age. And I think our ads speak to that. There's a tremendous benefit there for millions of homeowners in many different classes of life. So I want to ask about the deeply cynical view of this measure, which is that it would essentially lead to more home sales at every turn. A tax incentive directly given to older homeowners to move. And then certainly if you're requiring a tax increase of what exists now for heirs, there's a decent chance that they sell that house as well. And so, of course, those things, home sales, benefit realtors who have poured tens of millions of dollars into passing this. And so tell me why sort of the cynical view of this is all about goosing home sales to the benefit of the real estate industry is is wrong. Yeah, well, I think it's important here just to talk about the broad bipartisan coalition that Prop 19 has gathered. You know, it's not just the realtors alone running this initiative. Obviously, the California professional firefighters are co-sponsoring this initiative because of the tens of millions and eventually hundreds of millions of dollars the measure is going to generate for fire prevention for 500 underfunded fire districts, mostly rural, I would point out, up and down the state of California. But it's not just that. I mean, we have disability and senior groups who signed our ballot arguments. We have dozens of state and local chambers of commerce. Black, Hispanic, Cal Asian Chamber of Commerce are on board. And the business roundtable. And it's not just business, but it's also labor. California Labor Fed and AFSCME were not on Prop 5. They are uh-huh. on Prop 19. Taxpayer associations on board Prop 19 as well. Twelve Republicans supported it between both houses of the legislature in order to get it on the ballot. The California Republican Party took no position, I think, because they see the benefit for millions of Californians. So again, it's a huge bipartisan coalition. That being said, if the realtors didn't want this, would this be on the ballot? In some aspects, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think portability has wide bipartisan support. There have been Democrat legislators that have introduced upward portability measures in the legislature over the past few years that obviously didn't go anywhere. But again, There are legislators that have introduced those measures. So, yeah, I I do think aspects of this would go forward. What effect should you expect this measure to have on home prices? Is there any data on that or any expectation? I mean, it's hard to know, obviously, how this is going to impact home price. You have to say, too, you can't view any of these policies in isolation. You know, COVID and people moving out of areas because they might not be tied to jobs anymore is going to have more impact on the housing market than any specific initiative does. But listen, I mean, we do think that seniors continue to move as a result of this proposition as they come to find out about it, as they realize it exists. 8.6 million of them look to move to a home that best fits their need and is appropriate for them. So homeowners tend to be wealthier than renters. Homeowners in, in California, you're more likely to be white than a person of color if you're a homeowner. And so this measure benefits homeowners who are older. And those folks, if they've been in their house a long time, receive the greatest benefits under the state's existing property tax rules. Why should we be giving those folks, again, who skew wealthier and whiter than the population as a whole, more benefits? First of all, listen, I'm not sure, even under current law, I'm not sure seniors benefit more than anybody else. Every single individual who owns a home or small business benefits from Prop 13's 1% cap and protection equally. But I mean, even beyond that, all seniors, all people with disabilities who own homes are going to benefit from Prop 19. Race doesn't matter. Income level doesn't matter. What does matter is that Prop 19 is going to provide some additional housing stock relief for communities across the state. So I don't think you can just single out, again, one group or class of people and say only they are going to benefit. 
But certainly, I mean, you're not disputing the demographics of people who own homes in the state compared to the population at large, right? Again, I think all homeowners are going to benefit from the provisions of Prop 19. I mean, even if you're not disabled or over the age of 55, the housing churn aspect that results from seniors moving into homes that best fit their needs are going to help, you know, millennial families with two or three kids as they look to move into some bigger homes vacated by those seniors, as well as millennials and Gen Z looking to crack into the housing market perhaps for the first time. So I want to drill down on some of the specifics of Prop 19. So as you know, current law allows California seniors to take with them some of their low property tax base when they move, if they move within the same county. And I think more importantly, if the new house that they buy is the same price or cheaper than the house that they're selling. Uh, Prop 19 would allow seniors to buy a more expensive house and still retain some of those property tax breaks. Why should seniors be allowed to buy a more expensive place if the goal of this is to allow for more downsizing? You know, depending on what county you're living in, there's a strong possibility that you might be forced to move into a home of greater value. Not uncommon in some of these rural areas in California where because of low house inventory, again, you may have to move into a home of greater value, even if that value is only fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars more expensive. Could you give us like a, a real world hypothetical there? Like I said, I mean housing markets could be limited in terms of inventory in some of these rural counties. And you know, under current law, you may need to move to a home because the current home you're in doesn't fit your needs and thus you may have to buy a home that's more expensive. I mean it's entirely possible that that could happen. I mean some of these groups that I'm talking to, especially who live in some of these rural areas, have actually made that argument. And I think it's important to mention too, two out of every three seniors in Californians get most of their income from social security. And the ability to be able to move is going to help those seniors on limited incomes because now all of a sudden they have options now that didn't exist before. I think that's it. Anything else that we should have asked David, but we didn't? Let me reiterate here again that Prop 19 will generate additional funding for fire and emergency response services as well as local government and schools by closing a loophole that's long been exploited and limits property taxes for seniors, people with disabilities, and wildfire survivors. And the fact that this benefits millions of our most vulnerable California residents and closes a property tax loophole that predominantly benefits out-of-state millionaires is definitely a reason why individuals should vote for Prop 19. You brought up the wildfire funding again. Let me just ask this. The lion's share of the wildfire money is supposed to come through the state. And under very complicated rules for how the state is constitutionally mandated to fund public education, the LAO, for instance, does not predict that the biggest part of this money would be available at least through 2025, the years that they do their route projections. What do you make of the fact that it appears or at least questionable whether the kind of the biggest part of this is going to actually appear in the foreseeable future? Bottom line is yes, the revenue absolutely is going to appear. The fire funding is out of a dedicated fund that's actually established by Prop 19. It's protected in the Constitution and it can't be rated by the state. Now, again, the amount of revenue that comes in you know, may change from year to year. But overall, I think it's fundamentally clear that the funding is going to increase over time. There's an independent analysis by uh, former Department of Finance head Mike Janest that shows Prop 19 is going to generate tens of millions of dollars a year 
growing to hundreds of millions of dollars a year. It's not like the money's being dropped into a fire fund and it just goes away and no one ever sees it again. We know that the funding is going to go to 500 county and rural fire districts that are going to expressly benefit and need the money. And in many of these cases, these funding formulas haven't been updated in 40 years, you know, and we need only look at our window over uh, the course of this summer just to see how much that funding is actually needed. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, David. We appreciate it. Sounds good, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And me, Liam Dillon. My Twitter handle is at DillonLiam. Please remember to rate and review the podcast when you can, and we will be back in another two weeks. And thank you very much to Abigail Zoger and uh, both of our guests this week. Looking forward to uh, to two weeks from now. <laughs> <laughs>